Is this thing still on? I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking? Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And my name is Sarah Fung. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes. If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis. This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you. Hi, and welcome everybody to the Green Nurse Podcast. Thank you again for joining us this week. You know, we have such an honor to have this guest with us today. Um, you know, myself and Sarah, we consider ourselves little health re- care reporters. You know, we get the, out there every once in a while and, you know, get it get an article written. But this individual that we have is is actually a star. So without further ado, Sarah, can you please introduce our guest today? Absolutely. And we've been following Andre for quite some time, so I'm actually going to introduce him now. Andre Picard is one of Canada's top health and public policy observers and commentators. Andre is an eight-time nominee for the National Newspaper Awards, Canada's top journalism prize, and past winner of the prestigious Missioner Award for Meritorious Public Service Journalism. Andre is also the health columnist at The Globe and Mail and author of six books, including the current bestseller, Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders. Welcome, Andre. We're so glad to have you here today. Well, thanks. It's nice to join you. And I have to say, I actually have read two of your books, and I think that, you know, you've definitely got a talent for writing, and you've definitely been on the scene for a while. So if I'm not mistaken, you've been writing for about over 30 years now. And uh, I just wanted to start by asking, have you always been a writer, or how did you get into health reporting? Yeah, so this is my 40th year of journalism, so I've been at it for a while. Uh, I kind of stumbled into it. I was at university, joined a student newspaper uh, because I was interested in music, uh, became a record reviewer. That may date me a bit, but reviewed records back in the day and then just got more and more involved in the newspaper. Uh, That was the uh, early 80s. It was the era of AIDS. As at student newspapers, we were very interested in social issues like AIDS at the time. So I started writing about it then. And uh, 40 years later, I'd, I'd say uh, AIDS is really the arc of my career. That's what I started writing about in healthcare. And I covered that very intensely for many years. And now I'm covering, I still cover AIDS. I'd be going to the International AIDS Conference, uh, the next one in July. But uh, these days I'm covering another pandemic that's uh, almost as bad as AIDS, but not quite. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of amazing. And, it, and it's not even like a stumble into it. it sounds like actually, that is a part of your own interests as well. Why did AIDS uh, particularly pique your interest? I think at the time, you know, student newspapers are very interested in social issues. As I mentioned, this is a very political 
thing that came along. And that really shaped the way that I cover healthcare. For me, health is very political. I write about policy. I don't really write about medicine except in passing. So I really write about that so that interaction of social and political and medical. And that's a, a space that not many people occupy. So I have a nice little niche there. And AIDS is just, a, I think from day one, a very compelling story. It had all the elements, you know, uh, of the the stigma, the the discrimination, the real challenge medically, socially. It really has all the elements and uh, very much like, like COVID, but on an even grander scale and a much longer and, and more deadly scale. Back in the 80s, AIDS was a very hot topic and quite controversial at the time. Oh, yeah, it was a huge issue. It was, a, a, you know, the worst, uh, biggest threat pandemic in 100 years. Uh, at the time, uh, there were no treatments for many years. Uh, it affected a, a very visible minority, uh, mostly gay men, and then uh, it started hitting harder uh, minority communities uh, like hemophiliacs, and then it spread into Africa. So it, it's, it struck all these vulnerable communities. And again, there are many, many lessons in AIDS that can be applied to COVID. It just reminds us that uh, viruses tend to pick on, on those who are most vulnerable, whether it's AIDS or whether it's uh, SARS-CoV-2. Viruses uh, tend to, to gravitate towards that, and, and they hurt those who are already uh, at greatest harm in society uh, at, at the greatest disadvantage. It's true. We've, we've seen that with COVID, and we've seen that with other, other you know, aspects in relation to healthcare. And I think you kind of touched on a piece there and I want to, maybe if we can circle back to it, where you talked about the the intersection of health and policy. We are huge on talking, even just with nurses, that, you know, there is a lot to say with the intersection of healthcare and politics. And I think if you can talk a little bit to that for our listeners, because, you know, we have listeners that are nurses, we have listeners that are physicians, and some of them still, I don't know how they couldn't at this point see the huge intersection of politics and healthcare. But could you maybe bring that around full circle into why that is such an important thing to actually write about? Well, healthcare is inherently very political, right? In in the most basic sense, there's nothing about it that's that's not political. That if it weaves into our lives every day, uh, COVID. I've often called uh, since the early days of COVID. I said it's really occurring at the intersection of ageism and sexism and racism because yes. you look at at who it affected. It affected the the frail elders in long term care. It affected frontline workers who are are very uh, largely racialized workers. And it affected women, mostly working women with children who are at a great disadvantage in the pandemic. So it, you know, we we like to say, and people were saying this early in the pandemic, oh, viruses are equal opportunity problems, right? They attack everyone equally, but that's not true. It's true biologically, but it's not true socially. And I think that, again, COVID, like AIDS, has reminded us of that that the social aspect is much more important and much more difficult to deal with than the biological. Absolutely. Like, I think in the beginning of the pandemic, we thought that it did affect everyone because it doesn't have any boundaries in terms of geographical location. But we started to see, at least in larger cities, it was settling in certain pockets. Obviously, um, the ones that were more working class, uh, lower socioeconomic status. And I feel like that was really the first pandemic. And now we're dealing with the second pandemic of misinformation. And, you know, there's so much out there that people are just, um, sometimes they are just reading things that are not really scientifically based or evidence-based, and that is really affecting our vaccination rates. 
And I know that you've talked a little bit about um, effectively communicating healthcare information as a major challenge that we face. Just wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say that. Yeah, I think, you know, again, on the, on the first element of your question, I think uh, it's true that viruses don't discriminate, but people do discriminate in how they respond to viruses. And that's just as important. hundred percent if not more so. And I think, uh, you know, the second part of the the misinformation part of it, I think people have to recognize that, uh, number one, uh, and I learned this a long time ago, that the number one tool we have in public health is communication. It's way more important than anything else. Uh, Public health is not about medicine, et cetera. It's not about vaccination. It's about communicating to people how they can protect themselves. And there's all kinds of elements to that, social distancing, vaccination, uh, et cetera. So we have to make that distinction. The communication is where everything begins and where everything ends. And we're in an era where uh, communication has been weaponized. Information has been weaponized. uh, And we're able to do that because of things like the Internet and and, uh, using information as as a political tool. So I, I encourage people to, you know, I, I think it's understandable that people are, are scared, that they look for various sources of information. All that is normal. Uh, there's always been misinformation throughout history. Uh, I'm a big fan of history, the history of medicine and healthcare. I think you learn a lot from history about what's going on presently. And we know that, you know, the, the first vaccine was developed in 1796 by Jenner. And there were almost immediately, there were people who were afraid of it, who, who had all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, this came, uh, the, the pox came from a cow that they used to create the first vaccine. And they said, people are going to turn into cows. Misinformation will, has always been with us and it always will be. But now it's being used in a very particular way for political gain, for financial gain. So I always encourage people, if you believe all this stuff, you know, about ivermectin being one of wonder drug, about there being a conspiracy of Bill Gates uh, putting microchips in our bodies, I say, if you believe that, then you should look into more closely the the backgrounds of the people promoting this. And the people promoting this right. are always making money with something else. They're selling some potion. Uh, they're selling some political ideology. So money is always at play. Economics are always at play. And we can't, for, we can't pretend it's one-sided. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so glad that you said that. And, and, you know, I was kind of wondering, I was like, I wonder if he wouldn't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole, but like, even just today, again, that name keeps popping up in the news. Um, Mr. Joe Rogan, he just, is just like this, this like annoying fly that just keeps coming on the wall. But I think, you know, again, his name has come up time and time again about his podcast where he talks to other healthcare experts and other experts about these various different things. And I think when you have such a powerful platform and you have the ability to reach so many individuals and, you know, um, there, that disregard for whether you're saying, Oh, you know, this is entertainment or, you know, this is just a banter and this is how we're having a conversation or that counter effect is the fact that this misinformation can still cause harm. And we're still seeing that. And it's just, I think the reason why most people don't want to touch it with the 10-foot pole is because, again, there is power in patriarchy and there's power in, in, in money and, and in capitalism, really. Yeah, and, you know, we when we have a platform, regardless of it's, whether it's Joe Rogan's show or a column in the Globe and Mail like I have, you have to try and use that platform responsibly. So when I talk to, to younger journalists, which I often do, I often say, you know, what I don't write is just as important as what I do write have to have 
discretion and we have to have uh, use our, our heads about what we report and not just report anything. We're not stenographers. We have to think and we have to use our, our platforms thoughtfully. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a really powerful thing to say because I think sometimes we don't we don't think about what is not being said as well. And I think that, you know, it's it's really important that during this time where um, health information is is critical that it's important that we think about what we do write versus what we we might not write as well. I think that's actually a really powerful message, not even just for healthcare writers, but for people who are who have platforms on Twitter or, or physicians, nurses who are using their platform to talk about these issues as well. Because I think those engines as well are are very very powerful. Yeah, and just going back to what you were saying about financial gain, right? We all know that Joe Rogan has a $100 million deal on Spotify. So, of course, there's financial incentive for him him to keep going. And he could pick any sort of doctor he wants to be on the podcast. And he has chosen to have physicians who are into the counterculture. And, you know, I think that's really dangerous. And, And I do think that there is some responsibility on their part to make sure that people that they sign, these artists, they are promoting evidence-based information, right? That's going to actually help us get over this pandemic. Yeah. And I think, you know, Joe Rogan is getting a lot of attention, but I, to me, he's not the worst of it. You know, the, there's the uh, Dr. Mercola's of the world, yes. who is a really a big, big anti-vax promoter who makes millions of dollars selling so-called alternative treatments. Uh, there's the Kennedy and his child defense, so-called child defense uh, charity that bring, raises millions of dollars, uh, being anti-vaccine, there's a lot of money in that. There's a lot of money in misinformation, unfortunately. I mean, I think when people talk about a grift, I think they think about, you know, these small people off the side of their desk that are selling t-shirts out of their bags. But we're talking about like huge grifts, right? We're talking about people who who have actualized power and are, are using it for, you know, not really great things. We know that that effective communication is hugely important when it comes to healthcare, and and we thank you for all of the work that you're doing. But let's talk a little bit about Canada's healthcare system in general. How strong do you think it is, and what opportunities do you see as a healthcare reporter and journalist um, for areas of improvement at this time? Well, I think we have to start by saying we don't really have a system. So that's the fundamental problem. We have <laughs> lots of elements and they're very siloed and they're not really interconnected. So I think that's a pretty fundamental problem. Uh, we don't have a national system in Canada. We have uh, 15 different jurisdictions. We have uh, 13 provinces and territories. We have a federal system, which is actually quite large. People forget about that. It's the fifth largest system in Canada. And then we have this weird uh, workers' compensation program, which is separate, which is a 15th system. So we have all these systems that are not interconnected. Uh, And when you get down to it, though, I think what's amazing about Canada is we do deliver really good health care. But I always say we do it in spite of the system, not because of it. We make it really difficult for providers to provide care efficiently and they do it anyhow Uh, you both work in the system you know that the system is just rife with workarounds Uh, every single day every worker has these workarounds that they know and they just shouldn't exist the system should be much leaner and smoother and more uh, patient friendly and it's not but despite it all we we manage to deliver pretty good care Uh, especially when people really need it you know we know we have this problem of wait times uh, especially for things that are not urgent but when it push comes to shove, you you tend to get really, really good care in Canada. And that's good, but we could do it so much better and so much more efficiently. 
Oh, absolutely. I think this is where we say um, people, especially those who aren't in healthcare, we use the term they have to navigate the healthcare system because of exactly what you said. You know, there's so many different specialists. Everyone has a different documentation system. I think that's a whole other story in itself where there are countries that have a seamless documentation system. So nothing falls through the cracks in terms of what treatment or what medications a patient is already on. And having to continuously retell your health history, um, I think that's a real challenge, especially for the elderly or those that don't speak English as a first language. And I envision this is my perfect world where everything is seamless, but I know that it's going to take so much time and effort. But I really do think that, like you said, there is a lot of strength in the healthcare system and we just need to put the resources in the right areas. Yeah. And our silos, a lot of our silos are pretty strong. You know, we have great hospitals, we have great pretty good primary care. Uh, you know, we have lots of elements that are good, but I always, uh, you know, I always say every bad thing that happens in healthcare happens in the transitions, right? Because of that navigation problem. That's the the single fundamental problem in Canada is this lack of, of connectedness. Uh, you fall through the cracks, sometimes literally, if not figuratively, and some of our older institutions. And that carries over to the the electronic side. We don't have good electronic health records, the electronic medical records. And we saw that, again, COVID uh, brought a lot of this stuff to the forefront, how we're really lagging uh, compared to many other countries. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot that can be said about the work that we can do and the work that we can do to change. And I think that, you know, I'm glad that there's a lot of people speaking out about saying, you know, we don't have a perfect system because I think there was this fairy tale or this this kind of magical thinking that, you know, we have the best system in the world. And really COVID kind of came in and was like, wow, there's actually a lot of challenges that we need to look at. And again, I think one of the challenges I think people really don't understand is that nurses have been drowning for years. <laughs> like we have been talking about a nursing shortage for such a long time. And nurses are really, really good at doing more and more with less and less. But we're now seeing that, you know, this is not sustainable. The system as it stands is not sustainable. And we're still seeking out resources and, and different avenues and pathways. We're talking about internationally educated and trained nurses. We're, we're talking about like, how can we deal with it as it as it stands right now. And I, I feel that we're, we're still not even really touching what the actual problems are underlying all of these really grave issues. And I'm, I'm really looking to see what are some of our politicians going to say and what are they going to be platforming on for the next couple of months? I'm, I'm very interested to know what, what they might be saying because I know an election's coming and I think these are hugely, hugely important issues. Yeah, I think, you know, the first part of your question, I think it's really important that we uh, we really mythologize Medicare. So I think Medicare is a great thing. It's a great philosophy. Everyone should have essential care that's affordable. That Nobody can argue with that. I don't think that's a, a, a great value to have. But to say that because we have that value, our systems works is wrong because many countries have universal care and they do it better than us. They do right. it more efficiently. They right. do it more fairly. So we have to make that distinction. We have to stop this mythologizing or saying Medicare is untouchable. We have to make it better, uh, not get rid of it, but make it better. Uh, the second aspect you're talking about, which I think is the number one health issue for the years to come, is the, the whole issue of labor, of personnel. Uh, it's interesting. You, you talked about nurses. That's of great interest of you guys on this podcast. But I wrote a book in 1996 about nursing, and it was all about that. It was about the, the coming shortage, the labor shortage that was coming. And 25 years ago, 
you know, nothing has happened in those subsequent years except it got worse. Right. So all I did in that book, I really just, I just went on the job with uh, 47 nurses. Uh, I followed them around and I wrote about what they do and the challenges and the challenges coming to the system as because the uh, aging profession and people were retiring and there was going to be more and more work. And everything in that book has been borne out many times over. Uh, but it was so predictable and it's so frustrating when we know all these things are going to happen and we just don't act. And I think um, I just wanted to touch on something you mentioned in one of your books is that Canada is really great at writing reports and recommendations in general, but not good on acting on them. And I feel like this is exactly the same as what's happened with your book. I'm sure you are not the only one that was warning of this upcoming nursing shortage that was 25 plus years in the making. And we're really in a really dark time in nursing right now. So this was completely something that we knew about, but again, wasn't acted upon. And I I just, I'm frustrated because I don't know what it's going to take for the government to actually act upon these recommendations proactively for once, instead of when we're when we're drowning, as Amy said. Yeah, I often, you're right. I've often written that we're, uh, one thing that Canada does better than any country in the world is write reports about our healthcare system. <laughs> right. So since the advent of Medicare, there's been about 150 high level reports saying how to fix it, how to update it, how to modernize it. Uh, terrific recommendations. The whole blueprint is there. All we have to do is start, start doing it. So that's, you know, on my dark days, I, I get depressed and say, wow, well, we've done all these reports, we've done nothing. And on my brighter days, I say, you know, the good thing is we have all the solutions at hand. If we decided to act, we could do so much tomorrow with not a lot of money. We could really make profound change very easily because we have all the blueprints there and we just have to implement them. Well, it's like that knowledge to translation gap, right? So for example, in science, we can research something find out this is the greatest treatment. And then 25 years later, we're actually now putting it into practice. It's it's insane. And I'm sure it's the same thing with these recommendations. And again, this is where my, I guess, my quality improvement hat comes on. And it's like, well, who who's held accountable to seeing these changes through? If we don't have a good accountability structure, then, you know, we could write really great recommendations for all types of things. So for example, in quality improvement, I work in the emergency services. Whenever there's, um, let's say, an incident or an issue with harm, you know, we say, okay, well, how can we prevent this from occurring again? How can we make sure that this particular scenario doesn't happen? We're going to make we're going to make these great solid recommendations, reinsert them in the situation and this and we'll never see this outcome again. But then if we don't actually take that great work and actually have that accountability structure where someone is kind of, you know, putting their finger on your back saying this happened, this is why we need to make the change no change is going to occur. So where does the accountability lie? Do you, do you have an answer, Andre? Well, I think the short answer is uh, in your question is there is no accountability. And that's the fundamental problem with the system. Nobody, nobody gets called to account for most failures. Uh, I dare say that with COVID, you know, uh, I wrote a book about long-term care, about 18,500 people have died in long-term care to date. I'm pretty sure no one will be held accountable uh, because that's what our history tells us. Nothing ever happens. I covered for many years the tainted blood tragedy, the worst public health disaster in Canada, about 30,000 dead. Ultimately, no one was really called to account. Uh, The Red Cross went bankrupt, uh, was taken over by another corporation, but they never really were held accountable. They just kind of folded as a business. So this, this is a very, very discouraging part of Canada as we don't really hold people to account 
uh, were maybe too forgiving or I don't know what, uh, how to explain it, but uh, we just accept these things uh, for reasons that are beyond me. Now, now I almost have, like, I was really hoping that you weren't going to say that <laughs> in terms of like the accountability aspect. And, and that was actually my greatest fear to feel that we, we really don't have anybody that we're holding accountable, but I, I feel that there's a lot of work that we need to do. We have to hold people accountable. It can't be this way that we just let these errors and these things occur and we don't do anything about them. Like that is, that would be actually insanity. The fact that we know that there's things that we can do, we have these recommendations and we do nothing. And not only do we do nothing, when we see the harm, we don't hold anybody accountable. Yeah, but I think the fundamental problem is if you want people to be accountable, you have to empower them. And we don't empower people in our system. Uh, you know this, your nurses on the front line, you're, you're disempowered every day. Your managers don't really have power. Even somebody who runs a hospital in Canada, uh, that's a powerful position on paper, but they're second-guessed by politicians every day. Hmm. So a really fundamental structural problem in our system is this political micromanagement. So I often look to, I read a lot about other countries, and the countries where have the best health care, uh, the short answer is politicians keep their nose out of it. They let it run like a corporation. And that doesn't mean a for-profit corporation. It just means it's run like a business, has accountability, expectations that have to be met. And when people don't meet them, they get fired. Right. So if you take a UK model, you know, model they have this trust system. So the trust has goals, it has a budget. And if it doesn't meet the goals at the end of the year, out goes the head of the trust. There's mm. actually really clear accountability. It's the same thing a country like Sweden every year publishes, here are our top 10 health goals. And if they're not met, well, somebody's going to get thrown overboard. They're going to pay you the price for that. So that makes them do stuff uh, rather than sit back. In Canada, the, the management model is to, to be invisible. That's yeah. how, you know, if you don't rock the boat, you do okay. Wow. And that, uh, that doesn't make for innovation and it doesn't make for improvement. And and when you say that there are countries that do this better, can you give us some examples of which countries those are? Well, I think you could name almost any European country. I, I'm a big fan of uh, the Netherlands health system, for example, uh, Denmark when it comes to long-term care, uh, France uh, has excellent uh, health care. And all of these, in all those countries, the thing they have in common is the actually the bureaucrats are respected. The people running the system, those are jobs that are are wanted. They're jobs that uh, people look up to. You know, you really respect the people running the system and the politicians uh, keep their nose out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I can give you a really practical example. One time I was at a speech by the, uh, the health minister of the Netherlands and the Netherlands un took, undertook this really fundamental change, something you'd never imagine happening in Canada. They had a system very much like Canada, all publicly funded. And what they decided to do instead was to contract it out to private insurers. So there's six insurers in that country and you can buy uh, your insurance. It's universal health care. Everyone's covered. The uh, amount of the payments are regulated by government. Uh, people who can't afford it, it's covered. So it is really a universal system, but it's managed by these public, these private insurance companies. And it, this is a really big, big change. So after his speech, I, I went up to the minister and I was talking to him and I was like, how, how did you do this? Like in Canada, people would go berserk if you even talked about this. And he said, listen, our, our, we have professional people who are hired to be experts. They told us this was more efficient. So we did it. And I was like, it sounds so simple when you say it like that. 
And that's that we don't do that. We don't follow the experts or we micromanage. You know, every morning the uh, political aides to the prime ministers and the premiers are looking through the newspaper headlines to see what are they saying about healthcare and let's let's go do something to get off that that. We don't want that on the front page of the newspaper. And that's the only thing that guides policy. It's all uh, responsive, reactive, and that's not the way to run a corporation. And this is really, it's a $300 billion a year corporation. That's what healthcare is. And it's poorly managed. It has no goals. It has no accountability. It's, It's quite disturbing. Well, 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 we are in quite the conundrum here then in Canada in terms of just like this conversation. It's I don't even know what to say. It's just there's so much that we maybe we should be looking at our political leaders and being, hey, like, you know, we need to start really holding people accountable and saying, you know what, we need to do this drastically different. I think everybody can agree that what we have been doing is not working and we need to do something drastically different. And we've seen here in Canada that the politicians have been way sticking their nose way too far in, into this. And and again, you know, if we had maybe just listened to the physicians and the nurses and the other people that had, you know, healthcare as as a whole, the the best intentions of it at heart, maybe we wouldn't be in such of a sticky situation that we are in today. I think there's a lot of learnings we really need to take away from all of this. And I really hope that in the next couple of months, we really see a different page. I, I'm hoping for a different page. I don't know about everybody else, but I think that we need to see something drastically different in healthcare. And I'm very, very interested in maybe this is a conversation that you could have, Andre, with our political leaders to be like, what are we platforming when it comes to healthcare? Like, what are some of the things that we that, you know, you feel or you think that Canadians want in terms of their healthcare system? Because we know right now that the status quo is not working. I mean, all we hear really from politicians is that we're spending too much on healthcare. That's all we've ever heard. But as you said, there are ways that we can do this that would actually utilize the funding more effectively. And I know that our counterparts in the U.S. look to Canada as role models for universal healthcare, but they don't realize that universal healthcare here actually doesn't cover a lot of things. One of them being medications, like we don't have pharmacare. And here we are looking to the European nations as you know, someone that's actually doing the job right. So I think that politicians need to realize that we have a long way to go in order to um, actually have a healthcare system that is functioning as a system. And you know, I just think there's so many distracting issues at play right now, and the public has lost faith in politicians to actually follow through with what they say they're going to do on their platforms. Yeah, and I think we have to we have to pay more attention to the nitty gritty of the structure. I think every problem uh, we have in healthcare is a structural problem and an administrative problem. You know, we don't we don't have medical problems. We have great medicine, but it's how we deliver it. It's the engineering that really matters, and we don't talk about that boring stuff often enough. Uh, Earlier this week, there was a meeting of the premiers and the prime minister. And what did the premiers ask for? They just asked for more money. And I've written many columns saying I I don't believe in that because I don't believe we need, if the system's not working, why do we want to constantly do more of it? We have to really fundamentally rethink how we do things rather than just, uh, you know, we've been spoiled in Canada in that we're wealthy. We just have been able to pump more money into stuff that's inefficient and get away with it. 
but we're at the point where we can't get away with it anymore. We have to address the structure. So to me, uh, you know, and then again, I, I said earlier, I'm big on the history. And I think the a fundamental structural problem is we created this Medicare system in the 1950s and 60s, and it was created for the demographic of the time. Right. So it was created to deliver acute care to a, a young population. And now we need to deliver chronic care to an older population. It's a very, very different world, but it's the same system. It just doesn't work. So I'm a big advocate. I've been saying for many years, I think we essentially need to turn the system on its head. We need to invest way more in the in primary care, uh, in you know keeping people healthy, keeping them out of hospitals, and stop pumping the vast majority of our money into to acute care and hospitals where it's really, really expensive. You know, that's what we do. We wait for people to get sick and then we treat them and we treat them well. But boy, it would be much better if they weren't there in the first place. Yeah, I, I'm kind of wondering, like, why that might be? Why is it that, you know, that that the system is working, that, you know, acute care is the focus? And I hope that money isn't the driver, but I, I don't know, right? Like, I, I always kind of question. And I think, Andre, your brain works very similarly to mine in terms of I am very focused on quality improvement. And what does that mean? It does look, mean looking at structural and, system, and systems change and changing things on a systems level. Because I think, you know, a lot of people are like, well, it's this individual's problem. No, it's typically a systems level approach that we need to making to make meaningful and impactful change. I think these are things that we really need to look at. And I think, again, with like your book, these are different avenues and different ways of thinking that we we really need to examine. I think we've had a really great discussion. Is there anything else on your mind these days that you think that, you know, that we might not be talking about that we ought to? I think for when we're talking about the health system, it, it comes back to what you said. It comes back to quality. It comes back to, I think we ca- we talk way too much about how much the system costs how much we spend, and we don't talk enough about what value we get for our dollars. Mm-hmm. So I often say, if you provide quality care, that pretty well works the other stuff out, right? Like if that's really your focus, when something's quality, it's going to almost by definition be efficient and it's going to be valuable. So we have to really put much more focus on the quality rather than the quantity of care. In Canada, we obsess about quantity. You know, oh, how many people can we pump through an emergency room? That, that's not what matters. Right. What matters is the right people should be there. So I I think that to me is the focus is really about uh, value for money. And the final thing I'll say, it's about values. So I just wrote this book about long-term care, how we failed our elders. And the conclusion of that book, spoiler alert, this is the last page, is essentially we have to give life to our values. So I think Canadians have really good values. We believe people should have access to care, that it should be equitable, affordable, uh, quality care. But we have to give life to those values. We have to be willing to to do the hard uh, work and the heavy lifting to give ourselves a system that delivers on what we really want. You know, it's, that's so interesting that you said this is like, it's like my lean Sigma six training is coming back into my mind, talking about like the value stream and talking about Kaizen and change and all of these hugely great qualities that we talk about, but we don't necessarily do. And I think that, you know, if I can point listeners to making sure that they reach out, they read your book, Neglected No More, I think that it's a fantastic read. And again, that value, you you can't put a monetary 
number on it because that in itself, in terms of if we have a system where people feel valued, it doesn't matter how much time they spend. So this is something that we've seen in terms of like lean and quality improvement, that if the value and the worth and the quality is worth the time, then people are more than willing to sit there or or even say I'm willing to pay for that type of care. So I think there's a lot of change and I'm I, I'm glad that we've had this conversation. I definitely hope that we have more because I, I, I hear that quality lens, quality improvement lens, and it makes me very excited to have these types of conversations. Andre, you have brought so much insight and perspectives and experience to this podcast. I would love to sit down with you again, but I think um, we'll have to save that for another day, another topic. Thank you so much for coming onto the Gritty Nurse podcast, and uh, we really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks. It was a pleasure to chat, and uh, thank you for all the work you guys do on the front lines, which is uh, so important and so valuable. Thank you so much. Where can people find you, Andre? Well, they can find me in the Globe and Mail, and they can find me. <laughs> I spend a little too much time on Twitter uh, on Picard on Health. <laughs>